Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I'm going to start by just asking us a question that I know elicits emotion. It's just two words. It could elicit the emotion of excitement or terror. Depends on what you're going through in life right now, probably what you've been through before, but the question is simply this. What's next? Now, if you're going through good stuff, you know that that question's like when you're a kid on Christmas Day and you open the first present, you're like, what's next? More good stuff to come. Or you're having a great meal and there's like eight courses and they bring stuff out and you're like, I don't even know this was a course, but it tastes great. What's next? Oh, dessert's coming. You know that's happening. Or you're binge watching a show and you're so stuck on the cliffhanger, I just got to watch for another eight hours. Or just the next couple minutes. What's next? And then there can be bad, right? Like everyone here is old enough to, I do know this, um, have lived through 2020. (laughs) Remember this? Two weeks to flatten the curve. Has it flattened yet? I'm not sure. Like, it's all kind of fuzzy, but we all got locked in our houses. Remember that? And then we started hating everybody. We're watching the news, and it's like, somebody could put out a social media post that says, I think yellow legal pads are better than white legal pads. Like, you're a terrible person. It's like, oh, okay. And we're watching, you know, it's like, don't leave the house, you're going to die, unless you're going out to protest, and police cars are getting on fire, and all this stuff, and then... And 2021 comes, and, and then all of a sudden it's like, what are you doing protesting the government? And it's like, oh, what is happening in our world? I had somebody text me and say, hey, are you going to condemn what happened? I was like, I wasn't even watching the news. What happened now? It's like, what's next? After Christmas, my family and I decided we were going to go see some friends in Florida. And somebody actually wrote and said, they saw some of our pictures in Florida and said, I can't wait to hear how the road trip went. Do you know, like when I'm alone, I'm thinking to myself, no, no. If there's something to share with you, that means something went wrong. Well, I don't know if you saw that a bunch of flights got canceled. And when we were coming to drive back to North Carolina from Florida, we successfully turned a 10 and a half hour drive into 14 hours. And that was because everybody in the southeast part of the country was getting on the same exit as us. And apparently they were all coming back at least to North Carolina, if not Ohio and other places. And so it was bumper to bumper traffic. I am a traffic ninja. I've got this. My family goes to sleep. I'm on mission. It's not a mission impossible. I am going to be the one person who's not slowed down by all this nonsense. But some of y'all are determined to drive in the left lane like you're just out sightseeing. Did you know there's a law against that in Florida? In Florida, there's a slowpoke rule, a law against impeding traffic, and if you're going to go below the speed limit, you're supposed to move as far to the right as you can possibly get. We do not have that law in North Carolina. Did you know that? If you didn't, go drive. It produces what it produces. And so I'm out there. There's this guy driving an RV, pulling a U-Haul with a bunch of stuff like strapped to everything in the left lane, probably from Raleigh. And I finally worked my way around him. See, I've acquired a special set of skills over a lifetime. Makes me a nightmare for people who drive slow in the left lane. And so I'm passing this guy, I get by him. And there's this Prius up there, like not hurting the environment, but slowing the rest of us down, probably from Chapel Hill. And so I'm behind him, pass them. And so in the meantime, my family's sleeping, watching movies on iPads, like, I hope you're enjoying the flight, like, I'm trying to stop and go and go through this whole thing. 
And my wife wakes up and says, you know, we need to use the restroom and eat. And I usually don't say this. I think it, but I don't say it. And I said it. Do you know how hard I've worked to pass these fools? Like, oh, we stop. And so we stop. We go to Chipotle. We argue about how it's pronounced, Chipotle. And I was like, you can't have chip in your name and not give us free chips. So we're having that whole conversation. And, and then, and I don't understand this. So in the lobby, if any of you ladies want to explain this to me, I am wide open. But there is a high demand for the women's restroom and not the men's. The, the best theories I can come up with is either y'all have couches in there, you're actually resting. Or, or maybe the guys don't wash their hands. And that's why when COVID started, we had to have all that stuff on TV about how long to wash your hands. I don't know. But y'all, it takes a long time. So I go in, I use the restroom. I come out, my ladies are still in line in the same spot in line. I've been a waiter before. So I said, what's your order? I'll go order. So I take their food, order. I go up to the people that are, there's a line of people at Chipotle. The first person who's standing by the tortillas. I don't need him because my wife ordered a burrito bowl. That means a burrito with no tortilla. And my kids want the same thing, but they want a kid version. So I say to him, I'd like a burrito bowl. We don't have any problem. That's totally fine. The next order, I said, I'd like a kid's burrito bowl. He says, well, we can't do that. I said, well, why not? And I felt like we've done that before, but I didn't want to be aggressive. And so I said, why can't we do that? He says, we only have quesadillas or tacos on a kid's menu. I look and there's like a nickel difference in price. And I'm like, okay, what's the difference? And he says, well, the quesadillas come with a big tortilla. The tacos come with two small tortillas, which I think to myself, no problem. I don't want a tortilla. So I said, okay, I just don't want a tortilla. He says, we can't do that. I was like, why not? He grabs the to-go container and he shows it to me and he points and he says, I'm supposed to put a tortilla right here. I think to myself, well, don't. And he says, uh, what am I supposed to put here? I, should, I messed this up. I should have said nothing. I said, I don't care. Put the meat there. Okay, now he walks over and starts talking to somebody else. I'm like, what happened? What's going on here? And so he goes over and talks to a coworker. They're talking to each other. She comes over to me and she says, uh, how can I help you, sir? I'm, I'm thinking, I just watched you guys talk about me. I know you know what's going on. I said, I just want, I don't care if it's a taco or a quesadilla. I just don't want a tortilla. She goes, we can't do that. I said, why not? She goes, we don't have a way to ring that up. I was like, charge me for a taco. Charge me for a quesadilla. I don't care. Just put rice, meat, cheese. Walk down the line. Charge me $10. We'll all be happy. Nope. She says, I'm going to go get the manager. I was like, no, no, no. I'm like, Guy Karen over here. I don't want any problems. Stop it. So the three of them are huddled up like it's an instant replay on an NFL game. They're like over there talking. I'm thinking, am I getting a penalty? What happened? Shanna walks up. She can see that I'm holding the line up. They're talking about me. She says, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. The manager walks up. How can I help you, sir? Like, you don't know. Well, I just wanted to order, I don't care, a taco or a quesadilla, but I don't want the tortilla. We can't do that. I'm thinking, oh man, we're really, in, this is the leader. And so then I'm like, I turn to my 13-year-old. I said, just order tacos. When they give it to you, dump it out, throw the tortillas away. To which the manager says, oh, we can do that. Oh, are you kidding me? So we pay. We're in the parking lot. I looked at Shannon. I said, what just happened? She said, you know, they think you're the problem. I goes, I know. And then I said to her, I don't know what they're teaching in school, 
but if our future of problem solving is dependent upon what I just experienced, we're in trouble. <laughs> and I know there's some younger folks in our church that are really smart, but I don't know what's happening all around the world. What's next? Not just in the education system, not just in our economy, but do you know this isn't a pastor with some gut feeling because of one experience. The future is not projected to be good for the church. The statistics say that at our current rate, we will be losing in the future generation about a million people that are raised in Christian homes. This isn't just people denying God or an increase in atheism or anything like that. That are raised in Christian homes departing from the church. So what's next? Today's message is one verse, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It's the next part of a series that we started last week when we started talking about the first steps of real renewal in the book of Judges. But today we're going to hone in just on this one verse because it talks about a generation that didn't know the Lord and we've got to ask ourselves the question, how can that even happen? But it can. And the rest of the book of Judges is going to show us what happens when it does. So if you've got your Bibles, Judges chapter 2. Looking specifically at verse 10, I'll start reading in verse 6. As you're turning there, usually I'll I'll remind you what the message was last week. I want to lay a little theological groundwork for us because some of you, when you realize this message is actually geared towards people that are 25 and under, go, got a week off. This is awesome. So I would just say to you, the only people that have a week off this week are as if you're over 25 and you're not yet a follower of Christ. This is kind of like a family talk. You get to listen in. The rest of us, I want you to know, no one's ever been born a Christian. This isn't just about parenting. This isn't just about raising kids. That matters. You're supposed to make disciples. Wouldn't it make sense to start in your home? But the family of God is of people who've been born again. If you're not born again, you're not part of the family of God. Jesus said that. Email him. John chapter 3, verse 3. It's impossible to even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So being raised in a Christian home, being around people who believe certain stuff, attending a certain building, denomination, whatever, none of that makes you a Christian. I got one friend who, he's a preacher, and he says, coming to church makes you a Christian about as much as going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Don't do it. So I want to say this. God never had any grandkids. He's only got kids. John chapter 1, verse 12. But when you're one of his kids, then you're part of a big family and we're responsible for each other. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the next generation. So whether you're single, never plan on having kids, you're retired, you've already raised kids, wherever you're at, you're not off this week. Unless you're an atheist, in which case we invite you into the family. And last week's message talked about that. Because there's always a path to new or renewed relationship with God. Remember Pastor Bryce followed me around? No matter how far we go, no matter what we do, when you turn around, Jesus is right there. You can go home, but you have to turn. And what happened in Judges chapter 1 is we saw Joshua's dead. There's no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And then there's a generation that's partially obedient to God. Let me say this. Your compromise now will lead to chaos for the next generation. What you do in moderation, they will do to extremes. What you tolerate, they will celebrate. And that's what we see. And many of us have experienced that if you've lived long enough to remember when you were just told to tolerate some of the madness we're currently witnessing in our society. Now you're shut down if you do not celebrate. So what's next? Well, they repent. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 1. He tells them, we had a covenant 
I'm supposed to be like a husband to you and you're supposed to be like a bride to me and you've, I've kept my covenant and you haven't. And so there's consequences and they weep. That's great. But what happens next? Well, it's almost like a second introduction to the book. Judges chapter two and verse six. When Joshua, wait, Joshua died in verse one of chapter one. Yeah, we're gonna go back. It's a little flashback for those of you who watch movies and Netflix. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. Ah, but remember chapter one from about verse 27 through the end of chapter one, but they did not drive out all of the inhabitants. They did not drive out all of it, but they didn't drive out and we talked last week why that wasn't ethnic cleansing, why it wasn't imperialism. But it was partial obedience that they didn't listen. And we're going to talk about that because it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. We don't know exactly how long that is. There's some time gaps here that the Bible just doesn't tell us what they are who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So we know about how long that book was then. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in a place that I can't pronounce, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And then here's our verse. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How is that possible? What does that even mean? Look at that verse. It's underlined on the screen here, and I challenge you to underline it in your Bible. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there was another generation. So this is the next generation. So there's, the, there's three generations here. There's the generation that was there when Joshua was there, and they followed the Lord, and they were obedient, and... They experienced the promises of God. And then there was another generation when the elders were leading and they were obedient. And it's nuanced, not everyone was, but not everyone wasn't. And, and they followed Yahweh, God. But then there's another generation. And there was another generation after them who did not know. Doesn't mean they didn't know about, didn't mean they didn't know the facts that the exodus took place. Doesn't mean they didn't know how Joshua had led the nation before them, but they didn't have intimacy with the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. And so what we're going to do in this message, I'm going to break it into two parts. There's really two points. The first part is really if you're 26 years old and older and you're a follower of Christ or, or profess following Christ. Uh, the second part is Generation Z. And so that is going to be uh, about 10 years old to about 25 years old. So just over college age range. Because people ask the question like, well, it's the fault of the parents that a generation would depart. Well, it's kind of like everything. It's really easy to speak in like a TED talk or a sermon and make big dramatic statements, but a lot of stuff is really nuanced. It's both. And next generation, when you stand before God, you're not gonna be able to go, well, my parents, whatever. I'm not talking about your parents, I'm talking about you. And what about generational curses? Oh, that gets messy too. You're reading the Bible though and you start seeing every generation had a chance to turn. There's always a path to renewal. Well, this generation, if you look, the Bible does say some really specific things about what we're supposed to do in our process of making disciples for the next generation. And so there's both that are happening. So our first point is simply this for this current generation. Uh, the legacy of this generation, 26 and up, so I'm putting us all together. I get it. Boomers, and I, like all that stuff together. The legacy of this generation is determined 
by your legitimacy. The legacy of this generation will be determined by are you legit or not? Are you authentic is another way to say it. And we live in a unique time, don't we, where the value of authenticity is so, especially the next generation, they're looking at us going, ah, oh, that seems, you're such a boomer, which means that's fake. You don't get it. You don't understand. Hmm. That's interesting because if you watch what will happen, sometimes people will spend like $2 million, $3 million making a, a video they want to go viral. Lights are right, scenes are there, but it feels phony. So they reject it. And then some guy's out sweating on a run, you know, oh, God laid this on my heart. All I can see is your nose hair. Like, but it's like, oh, I just felt that we felt that. And it's authentic. And there's this value for authenticity, but there's also a culture of like fakeness. Like everything's filtered on pictures and then you've got counterfeit, bunch of you know, fake cereal instead of Cheerios. You got oats of great cheer and you got all this stuff. Everybody's got their own brand and all these things taking place, counterfeit money. People are stealing identity. Like it's just that both things are happening simultaneously. A lot like life. Did you know there is a specific community uh, about sneakers that exists right now? You know, and there's still baseball cards for those of you who are of that generation more, and they're still like, you know, collecting all, you can collect it. Here's the deal. Here's what I tell my kids. God has made each one of us relational beings, and within us, uh, we're made in his image, um, the image of the Trinity, who are living in constant community all the time. We will find a reason to connect with other humans. So whether it's your book study, or it's your group, atheism group about what you don't believe, or it's a church group about what you do believe, like whatever, you'll, we'll find a reason to connect. So there's a whole community around sneakers. My brother, who's younger than me and a lot cooler than me, will send me stuff periodically about how his son loves these sneakers. And so he's showing me good deals and we're just talking. And eventually he got me kind of interested in it. And so I dove in. And those people who are close to me know, uh, when I go to learn a topic, I'll dive all, I'm all in at that moment. And so I don't mean like I read a couple articles. I'm like, I'm reading blogs. I'm getting involved in chats. I'm hanging out at sneaker shops. I'm trying to learn the nuances and how all this stuff happens and why, why do you like something? And I'm talking to this one guy at a sneaker place and he's like, here's the deal. You buy these um, Carolina blue shoes anywhere else, you bring them here. They sell for way more money. So go buy your shoes in Arkansas. But anyway, right? He says, I got these one shoes that they sell for way more in Miami. And like, he's telling me this whole thing. I'm learning this. We go to like a sneaker convention, my kids and I. But there's also a counterfeit culture there where you can buy the same shoes. They look the same. I used to think like if it was a knockoff Nike, it would be like spelled Mikey on the tongue. Or like instead of the jump man, he's got like a beer belly. He's the lump man, like whatever. Like I just thought, but some of the counterfeit shoes are actually better than what Nike's producing. And so I'm learning about that. I meet some people. I talk a lot. So then people talk to me. And, and so I build some relationships. I end up meeting these people that have these counterfeit shoes they make and they sell them for way less. And so I'm on these sites and I'm looking. I'm going, hey, these people are selling counterfeit shoes. You can tell by the prices, but they're not telling people it's counterfeit. I'm going to be the guy that's just honest about it. And so I list some replica, don't call them counterfeit, replica shoes, but I put it in the title. I don't think it's doing anything wrong. I go to work one day. I come back. I check the website. They pulled it down. I've got a notification. You're going to be banned if you try to do this again. And I'm thinking, they're all doing it, but whatever. <clears throat> so I'm like, what did I do wrong? So I Google it. Yeah, it's against the law. <laughs> and um, I found out that it's not against the law to buy and wear this stuff, but it is against the law to try and resell it. So then I'm like, well, what can happen? So I Google that. Don't do that. 10 years in prison, $2 million. I'm like, oh no. So I call my lawyer and friend and was an elder at our church, J.D. Henserling, and I missed him. But I've called him for other things. We won't get into that right now. I know what he's going to say to me. Scott, just obey the law. 
I didn't know it was a law. I was doing what was right in my own eyes. Hmm. Uh, at these sneaker conventions, they have an authenticator. They're trained to see what's authentic and what's not. The only reason we know that two generations were authentic is because the Bible tells us. Joshua, he followed the Lord. Joshua was a sinner, but he followed the Lord. The elders, oh, we would think, because we oftentimes read these things so simply, like, no, then the next people, they were just gone. But then we read chapter one, it's like it gives us the details and some of the nuances. They're obedient, but just partially obedient. Your compromise, you need to be legit, your compromise will lead to their chaos. Your deception, the next generation's decline. The things that you're thinking, oh, it's not that big of a deal, I mean, whatever, and it becomes disastrous for them. And that's what we see, and so we don't have time to read all of chapter 2, but I mentioned chapter 2, verse 16, last week, that talks about what our sin is like before God. We minimize it and rationalize it, but he calls it prostitution. You're whoring yourself, worshiping creation rather than the creator. In verse 19, look at what it says. But whenever the judge dies, so God's gracious and he always sends these deliverers. When they cry out to him, he sends a deliverer and that's where you get these people that we're going to look at. Gideon and Deborah and, and Samson and all these different people. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods. Now if you said to most people, hey, are, are you turning from God because you're going to go worship a bull? That you're going to worship money? That you're going to commit bestiality, incest, human sacrifice? No. This is more nuanced than we like to acknowledge. It's not just a turn in rebellion. We don't drift toward God. We drift away from God. Our drifting away from God leads to our deception and then disobedience and eventually disaster. Look at what the next part of verse 19 says happens. So then these judges die They were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. So it got worse, progressively worse, serving them and bowing down to them. If you had asked Israel when they were taken over the land and they decided not to drive everybody out, but to live peacefully with the Canaanites and said, is this because you want to commit human sacrifice? No, we're not going to do that. We'll keep reading the book. Serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. But if you were just looking at them on the outside, most of us would be like, they're fine. But remember what's happening. It's repeated all throughout the book. Everyone did what was right, even the judges, in their own eyes. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And it's so hard to tell who's authentic and who's not. For those of you who know the Bible, I'll just give you an example. Um, If I were to ask you, who's a follower of God and who's not? Judas or David? Well, Even if you don't know the Bible, you probably know Judas is bad. That's why you didn't name your kid Judas. Like if we go over to the nursery right now, anybody in here named Mark? Yep, we got a Mark. Anybody named John? Well, we got a John over here. Luke, yep. Judas? Like if you pull your kid out and you're like, looks like a Judas. Like we got to fix this. Like everybody knows Judas is bad, but would you have known if you lived with him? Is it not interesting to you that the disciples didn't know until after? Huh. Well, you look at his life, and he left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus teaches some hard stuff. Read John chapter 6. It says that many of the disciples departed from Jesus. Because he said, if you don't have all of me, you don't have me. And he turns to the disciples, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, all those guys, and Judas. 
are you going to leave? And Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. But Judas persevered. He stayed. Read Luke chapter 10. Jesus, that's after Luke 6, when Jesus names all the apostles. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 or 72 of his disciples. And they go out two by two into cities. And you know what they do? Proclaim the kingdom. Experience persecution. Remain content in all circumstances. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. So if you were going to take Judas's resume, he left everything to follow Jesus. He perseveres when other people turn their back. He experiences persecution. We've seen him have contentment in all circumstances. He teaches the Bible. He has done miracles. And yeah, I mean, at the end of his life, he saw an inevitable situation and he took advantage of it for his own personal gain. But wouldn't many of us? What we don't see is his heart. And the problem with his heart is he loved money, not God. And we find that out later. David, on the other hand, not selected when they're going to pick a king because of outward appearances. He wasn't tall enough, and so no one thought he'd be the guy. They picked Saul based on how tall he was. Uh, New Testament scholarship, bad decision. (laughs) And it went poorly, but they're still thinking it. And so, no, it can't be him. And God was looking at his heart for Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. He calls him, he steps out and he fights a giant and he's patient and he doesn't touch God's anointed to try and grab what God provided for him until it was God's time and that's good. He writes the Psalms, that's good. He's a passive father. He's got multiple wives in spite of the fact that that's commanded as a sin, specifically for the kings, not to store up horses and wealth and have multiple wives. What he does, he's a polygamist who's not good. He lets sin go free in his home, which leads to the division of his kingdom. And his kids do on the rooftops what David does in secret. It gets chaotic, his compromise. And so he doesn't do that. Oh, and by the way, he takes one of his employees' wives, even though he's got multiple wives, sleeps with her, and when he thinks he's going to be found out, kills his employee. So which one's fake and which one's real? The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. says about Judas, it had been better had he never been born. Remember one time a very compassionate woman in our church came to me and said, I, I think Judas is in heaven. And we were looking through the scriptures together, talking through all that. And I said, how can, you, how can you possibly, if he's in heaven today, no matter what happened here, how can you say that? But you look at, both of them had regret when they were confronted with their sin. But I mentioned last week a passage of scripture I want you to see this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. You want to go to the sneaker table and talk to the authenticator? Let's see what the Bible says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Okay, that's where godly grief goes. What are you grieving? Because grief comes when you lose something. What did you lose? Leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, so they're both grieving something, but there's two different kinds of guilt, two different kinds of grief that happen here. One leads to condemnation, like the guy who takes his life and has said that he'd better had he never been born. One leads to salvation and liberation because there's no regret. And that's the difference that you see. But the problem is we can't see the heart. See, what that first Samuel verse says is that God looks at the heart. I read you a proverb last week. God weighs the heart. And the difference in the heart is this. This is a huge difference. If when you are confronted or caught in your sin, which can be you come to the scriptures and you realize the scriptures are different than the way I'm living, or you got something exposed, are you lose, what's the, what are you losing there? Pride, your face, you upset about the consequences. That's a different kind of grief than realizing I've broken intimacy with God. 
how does David say against you and you alone have I sinned when he's killed somebody, committed adultery, cost the life of a baby? Against you, it's the, he's grieving the most significant loss and you see the heart. So questions for you. When you sin, what have you lost? You're still a child of God if you're a follower of Christ, but you've lost intimacy. You're in union, but you've lost communion. Do you grieve that? Does that matter? So that, are you legit? We gotta be, our legitimacy is leaving our legacy. And I wanna tell you right now something not a pastor has a hunch about, but have you ever seen stats? Whether it's Barna stats, Gallup polls, secular, CNN puts something on, MSBC's got something, Harvard's got something. And you think, there aren't that many Christians in America because I live here. Let me tell you what many people who claim to be evangelicals believe. It's a theological study that was done. We can give you the whole thing if you want all of it, but more than half of evangelicals, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and on and on. Um, see the book of Judges. Judges 2.16, 2, chapter 2, verse 16, he says that's prostitution. I don't believe that, God. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't mean it's not true, and let me pause and say that. What you think has no bearing on what is true. Your beliefs do not make something happen. We have a weird relationship with truth in this culture, and specifically in this country. In this culture, we think, well, that's not what my truth. I'm going to live out my truth, and this is what I believe. You can believe whatever you want. You do have that freedom. However, your belief doesn't make it true. So our relationship with truth is usually whatever I think, that is what is truth. No, our relationship with truth should be, I need to find, seek the truth, and whatever I find, that's what I believe. You submit to the truth, we should be seekers of truth. Well, I be- if you say, I don't believe, the God, I don't believe in the God of Judges. Okay, Jesus then? Because you're saying you're evangelical. Yep, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. That includes whether you deny Jesus as the Jews do or whether you believe in Allah like the Muslims do, like all of them that aren't following Jesus, don't go to the Father. Okay? Because the people that say they're evangelical are saying they believe the Bible. Okay. More than half, 56% agree, that worshiping alone or with one's family is, val- is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Wow, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is the clearest, obvious one that people quote all the time online. Uh, don't forsake the assembly of believers. Great, but there's a lot more to say than just that. In John chapter 17, the world's going to know that we're his followers by our unity and diversity in the body. You're part of a much bigger and messier family. The angels are watching. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 and seeing, like, this is a cosmic drama that's being played out, what's happening in our lives amongst the people that are part of what they profess to be the church. And, and then you, you got Hebrews chapter 13 talked about being submitting yourself to spiritual authority. You can't do that just where two or three are gathered. People who use that Matthew 18 passage never tell you. Uh, the context for that is actually church discipline. Hmm. Context matters. And so, what else? 55% believe the Holy Spirit is a force. This isn't Star Wars. Holy Spirit is a person, by the way. More than 53% um, disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. The Bible talks about this impossible situation. It's never happened. Jesus obeyed the law fully. There's never been a person who's obeyed the law in every way, but one little way. But it talks about if that were true, James chapter 2 and verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Yeah, I just don't believe that verse. Well, who cares? But okay. 
more than, this is the worst one, more than four out of 10 evangelicals, 44.4% per, um, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. Hmm. Um, if that's you, I do want to say this gently. His death on the cross and resurrection are actually irrelevant to you if you believe that. Because it doesn't matter. If he's not God, best, how can anyone die for the sins of the world if they've only lived one righteous life? One life for one life. Best. If that were even possible, which I'm not saying it's true. It's like when Jesus died, if he decided to give the righteousness that he had, he could give it to one person and spend eternity in hell, separated from God, give it to one person, and you think it's you? Wow, I mean, I've heard of self-centered, but whoa. It's not you. He is God. And if he's not God, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're without hope and dead in our sins. The problem is, in America, is we don't have a sneaker table where we can go and say, am I authentic? But we've got this. And this is truth. And it tells us. And so, search my heart, God. Show me offensive ways in me, Psalm 139, and, and then what do you do? And then I'll reveal something to you. Are you legit? We need legit. Because we've got a lot of people that profess, based on this survey, so me making this up, Christ, they do not possess Christ. And next generation, you're wondering if your parents are legit, you're wondering if I'm legit, you're wondering if whoever's legit, here's the deal. If you profess Christ but don't possess Christ, you can put a whole lot of space, uh, stuff that happens in the next block of that sentence, perfectionism, moralism, politics, what you don't put is passion. You cannot fake passion, for, at least not for very long. It doesn't produce that. Profession without possession can produce a lot of stuff. But are they legit? Do they love them? So, next generation, what about you? Uh, the legacy of the next generation will be determined by their pursuit of fulfillment. The legacy of the next generation will be determined by their pursuit of fulfillment. What happens for many people that live according to their what is right in their own eyes, their own laws, they, they think that they are their own God, is they're trying to figure life out and they're looking around and some of them are looking at us in this generation and going, I don't want that, whatever that is. And then we in this generation are looking at them and going, they don't value the same things we do. What's wrong with them? And yeah, we're different, but let's think a little bit about why. I was listening to a podcaster, way smarter than I am, who works for this big research firm, and she was talking about the next pandemic. She had talked about COVID being a reality back in 2010, actually, and so they went through some of that information. And she said, actually, the biggest concern for many of our world leaders, the World Economic Forum, is that the next generation will just stop working. Huh, we're starting to see some of that. She talked about that happening in, in Asia right now, and, and she said, because they're looking at their parents and going, you're working like crazy and you're miserable. I don't want to do that. So I just don't need all your stuff. So I'm not going to do what you do. And then we go, oh, you guys are so weak. You know, we say back to them, like, I walked uphill two ways of the school and you're doing online school. What in the world? Have you seen the meme? It's like, I used to have to stay up all night and watch the scrolling bottom of the news to see if school was canceled on the snow day. They get a text message. So you didn't do your term paper because you were watching and, and what were you praying to? The TV? Like, <laughs> come on, let's be honest. And so it's like, but we think we're better, but they're looking at us and going, I want fulfillment. Every human does. There's a hole in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And we're all pursuing it. What are we pursuing in that pursuit? And some of them are looking at you and going, yeah, you profess God, but you're not happy. I don't want to do what you're doing. So I'm going to try something else. What? Whatever's right in my eyes. 
And so I want to challenge the next generation, don't do that though. If they're not legit, then what, what does it really look like to follow God? And so my first exhortation to you is, you be legit. You. Go, if you're going to reject Jesus, reject Jesus for who he really is. Not for who somebody has told you that he is. Not for what your parents have said that he is. You want to see passion? Psalm 63. It's written by David. When his family's fallen apart because he didn't deal with sin way before his sin with Bathsheba. Absalom, his son, is trying to take his kingdom. There's division in his own family. Dad's, he's trying to steal dad's spot. And David's got to run out into the desert. But he cries out to God and says, oh God, you are my God. That's possession. Earnestly I seek you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I want, and it should say water, right? Part of creation. No, he says, I want the creator. I want you. Why? Because your love is better than this life. That's passion. He possessed it. He really messed up in handing it down and leading his family. Great leader at work. Terrible leader in his home. But we're all broken. And so you, the next generation, do you want that passion? There are people that are legit. This week, I went to a, a deal at the Raleigh Police Department. If there was ever a time to commit a crime in Raleigh, it was, if you were in North Raleigh, it was then, because we were all downtown. Um, you missed your opportunity, so there you go. But, don't, and online, they'll still catch you. Don't be selling fake shoes now. But uh, it was a, a majority of police officers from the Raleigh Police Department there. And it was because there were some people in our church, um, Gary Hartman, who you might know, uh, works on staff at our church, and Dennis Ferguson's one of our deacons, Miss Shirley. Um, I don't want to say her last name because I don't want to mess it up, but I love you, Shirley. Um, Miss Shirley, um, who you've probably met in the lobby today if you're new. <laughs> and um, they've been going and starting a relationship with the police for a long time. Every Wednesday they take them lunch. Gary told me the real change in their relationship was when he sat down and started having lunch with them. And so I watched as the police would come to Gary and he knew what their house was like. How do you know that? Because you have a relationship. Talk about other stuff. They've been through stuff together because they come to Gary and Dennis and Shirley when there's problems and they want a God answer. And so we were receiving as a church, not because of something I did. I was there as the face of this place, by the way, on your behalf. So I felt a little bit phony. <laughs> that it was like, they're the ones doing all the ministry. Um, but I, I got a citation uh, from the chief of police. That's, a, that's an award, by the way. It's not a ticket. Hmm? <laughs> One legal offense per sermon. By the way, I went to the authenticator table at the conference and I said, if a guy, didn't say me, if a guy, this is how the pastor gets questions, so I just gave one, um, if a guy were to accidentally post and then, but he never sold and he pulled it back off. And, so I don't think I'm in trouble until I get in trouble for sharing it with you about the shoes. But we're there and the chief of police gives this big speech about a certain level of service in the community that she acknowledges as the chief. And then she starts talking about our church. And she reads this letter, and I don't have time for me to read you the whole letter, but I want to read you the end of it because it blew me away. This is a government agency that was saying this. It says, your devotion, talking about Southbridge Fellowship, specifically represented by Gary and Shirley and Dennis, your devotion to the police community brings hope to our hearts and our heroes who many times may feel the absence of community support. You've demonstrated Christ's love and light Government agency, you've demonstrated Christ's love and light to the world in many ways. We offer our sincere gratitude for all you do on behalf of the Raleigh Police Department. It is my distinct honor and privilege to present you with this chief's citation. And so I thought, as I heard her say those words, it's like about 16 years ago, I talked to a group of people 
about 40 of us gathered together and I said, what kind of church do you want to be? And I said, hey, Shannon, we're going to move here to start a church, really. The goal's not to gather. We want to make a big difference in the city. We want the city to be different. Jesus' vision for us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you're the salt, you're the light. And it says at the end, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who's in heaven. And I'm thinking about Gary and I'm thinking about Shirley and they're living it out, legit. And then they give glory to Christ the government document because of their life. There's people, next generation, that are legit. If your parents aren't legit, they're here. And there's phonies here too, but there's people here. And they're living it out. You know, one of the things they said in that, that gathering, some of them were for citizens and some of them were for police officers. If you didn't just move here, which I know some of you did, you remember there was a shooting in October on the Greenway. Five people died. One of them was Officer Gabriel Torres. Um, he's a police officer in the Raleigh Police Department, young man, left behind his wife and two-year-old daughter. And they brought the wife there. They were giving Gabriel an award. This award presented his badge to her. It was a very emotional time. But they pulled out his file from the police academy. <laughs> People are watching all of us. And they read what he was like. So it wasn't just that he passed the test. That's not what the academy notes say. It talks about what kind of officer he was. Now he had just come from his time of service to the Marines, he was in incredible shape. When he went to the academy, so the academy requirements weren't that hard for him, but they said in the, the write-up, it was hard for some people, he never said a disparaging word to any of those people. Instead, when he was done doing his runs, he'd go back and help the people at the back finish their runs by cheering them on. Talked about his encouragement to others. Talked about the day before he was shot, on October 12th, that he had gone, responded to a domestic issue at a home where there's an unruly teenager, met with the young man, said to him, what his life was going to lead to. And the young man said, I want to be a Marine. Torres is a Marine. And he says, this is not the kind of behavior that will lead to that. But I'm going to be here for you. Anytime you need help, I will come. That's what he said. You know what they were saying about Torres when they were saying all these nice words? He's legit. If you, you're, you can't, you're not going to be able to stand before God one day and say, hey, there's other people that weren't legit. God's going to go, I'm talking to you. You be legit. How does that happen? Here, I'm going to tell you right now. Enjoy God. Enjoy him. Delight yourself in him. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. You want fulfillment and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What's in our hearts? Every one of us longs for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3, 11. I love that. I think it was C.S. Lewis, maybe it was Francis Schaeffer, one of those smart guys from a little while ago. If you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world will satisfy, that's probably a sign you were made for another world. At least give God a chance. Even if everybody around you is a mess. What does the Bible say about God? And if you don't like them, maybe you're wrong. Because Jesus in the New Testament says, I am living water. I am the bread of life. He is the fulfillment for all the longings you have. That's legit. And that overflows. It overflows into living like family. And so now I'm really talking to both of us. Um, the verse that our, our student ministry oftentimes talks about, and that's everything from college down to nursery, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. We don't have time to go and unpack Deuteronomy chapter 6 and, and why this generation's leaving. But I'll tell you this, it's nuanced. It's similar to the judges. It's not because somebody didn't preach a sermon in the home. The Bible doesn't promise that if you tell your kids the truth that they will follow Jesus. And it doesn't promise if they walk away from Jesus, they will come back. Some people think it does. And they use Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Read it. It says the opposite of that they will come back. It says they will never depart. But here's the thing. It's not saying if you teach them, they'll never leave. Um, it's a proverb. 
Proverbs, know your context, are general truths. This is the wicked don't prosper. Have you looked around? It happens. And so a general truth is not an absolute truth. It's this is how life basically works. And what we see in the book of Judges, I'm going to pop a slide up here just as an overview of what's coming, is there's a general cycle. And some of you are going to look at that and go, that's the cycle of my spirituality. It's also the cycle of every culture that you'll look at that had any influence of the one true God. And it's the one we're currently going through, but we're talking about the book of Judges. What you see is people get deceived. They do what's right in their own eyes. It leads to disobedience. God lets them run for a little while. Depends on how long the leash is. Sometimes there's even prosperity, which some people mistake for God's blessing. Nope, because there's a lot of poor people that have God's blessing. Then there's destruction. It gets really bad. The pain gets bad enough that they desperately cry out for God. What's going on in their hearts? Don't know. God does. But God always sends a deliverer. There's always a path to renewal. Sometimes the name is Samson. Sometimes the name is Deborah. There's always a deliverer. And then when they turn, there's forgiveness and renewal and a season of fulfillment. But (laughs) people get fooled. They follow creation again. And the cycle continues. And what we can't really illustrate on a slide like this is it keeps 219. And they were worse than their fathers. And they were worse than their fathers. And they were worse. We have not gotten as bad as the book of Judges yet. I don't think we're that far off. I don't know that, but I don't think we're that far off. Pedophilia, bestiality, it's coming. Seeing the cycle. We think we're the exception. Wake up. But when you enjoy God, it overflows out of your life and the lives of others. Deuteronomy chapter six says to teach your kids these things. It doesn't mean preach a sermon to them. It means as you're living your life, it flows out of your life into their lives. That's legit. And if you're legit, the way we say it at Southbridge is spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. That's not just your home, but of course you'd start with your home. And then outside the home, how do we do this? We're going to have a conference in the fall, Lord willing. The family ministry is planning it. I haven't been invited to speak, so I don't know what they're going to say. I said in the first service, and Holly, um, who's our family pastor's wife, leaned over to him and goes, now you've got to invite him. <laughs> it's my passive aggressiveness coming out there. But um, if I were there, I would share what I do with my family. Um, this isn't the Bible. This is what I do. I'll give you a couple tips and some of this stuff. Is I take my core, not the church's core values, but my core values and try to impart them to our family. I think there's power in telling stories. So tell stories. But I'm not talking about Bible stories. Yeah, of course, teach them the Bible. Samson and all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about like your moments. When did you come to faith in God? What was that like? When have you failed? What did you do? When are times you were desperate for him? When are times you saw him answer a prayer? Those are your Tie it back to this text. Joshua chapter 4, when he crosses the Jordan with the people, he looks at the adults. Put stones down here so that you can tell whenever they see the stones, this is a memory moment. These are stones of memorial. What are your, your personal, so if you have a relationship with God, you have some of these moments where your faith grew. Those are the memory moments. That's how you impart that to the next generation. But you have to make those moments too. You don't just have all this stuff from the past. And so what I try to tell my kids is it's a walk with God. It's a a life of faith. It's not a step of faith. It begins with a step as every walk does. But a walk with God is to continue to step by faith. And so the way that I say it is take risks. Take risks for God. 
this church is built on people that have done that. One of the reasons why we um, can be financially generous with our community is because of people that have been financially generous to this ministry. I remember a couple one time at the door saying, I feel like God called us to empty our bank account and give it to the church so that when there's time to buy a property, we've got money. Well, it's one of the reasons why we're debt-free on this canvas because of couples like that. Now, if God lays that on your heart, I'm not saying we don't, we're debt-free. We don't need to pay for these buildings. Give it to somebody else. Like, do it. And then your family and kids see. You don't got to go around telling everybody, but they, people that are close, they know what's really going on. They see you. But sometimes it's small stuff. Pray. Pray for somebody. Have a conversation. Be kind. Look for someone to encourage. On like there's these things that are walks of faith. Take risks. Tell stories. And be curious. You don't have God figured out. And don't be insecure about that. When they ask you a question, my kid reads the Bible more than I do. They're going to ask questions I don't know. Yeah. Ask them. What do you think? Let's find out together. He's eternal and infinite. You think, I've got degrees in this stuff. And some of you ask me questions. I go, I don't know. The message in the second service last week, I made some tweaks from the first service because a guy in the first service did what you're supposed to do. Like a Berean was like, well, what about this? You didn't hear me talk about the Gibeonites. I'm like, it's so messy that I'm just causing people problems. So let's do this together. And when you go through suffering and you lean into God and it feels like he's getting bigger, it's because you're leaning into an infinite, eternal, he's way bigger than you think. So you try to put him in your box? I, think, I don't remember who it was. This. He leaks. Your box can't contain him. You don't get to remake him. He made you, but you're supposed to be on a quest. Part of the quest for truth will end with him. I am not just the way. I am the truth. And I am fulfillment. I am the life, Jesus. So, and get him plugged into a church. We can talk about that for a long time. The Bible says a lot about that. But they need structure. And they need to be around people that aren't like you and that aren't like their teachers and that aren't like their coaches. And they need to see there's people that are winning, that love Jesus. And some of them will pick their careers based on that. And a lot of them will, will decide their faith based on that. And so there's a lot of pragmatic reasons that aren't just Bible. The Bible says a lot about it. But with, even if it's just not the Bible, it's like just being involved with the diversity of a body of Christ. They need that. Live out the one another's. We give them a weekly opportunity to serve. Your life, if you want greatness in your life, you give your life away. It's not from grabbing hold of this creation. It's from giving your life away. And so, but just as a church, what we want to do, because we do care about the next generation, you can see it in our ministries and the things we do in our community. Well, we care about you here right now too. So I'm going to ask if you are 25 and under for you to come forward and we're going to pray for you. You don't have to do anything. We just want to say a special prayer for you today. So I'm going to ask Pastor Brad, who's our family pastor, to come up here and pray a prayer. And so if you are 25 and, and younger, and if you're dating somebody and you lied to them, told them you're 25, repent, stay seated. <laughs> if you're 25 and under, we want to ask you to come up here, kneel down at these steps or stand or however you want to do that. If you have a kid that's up here or you're discipling or already mentoring one of these young people and you want to come up here and pray behind them, feel free to walk up here behind them. Don't, and if you can't get right by them, that's fine. Don't touch anybody. Like just put your hands out like you're laying hands on them. And uh, Pastor Brad's going to pray a prayer and then the worship team's going to lead us in another song. But we want to pray for the next generation. So we've got some middle schoolers that were in another room coming in here and if you're in this room, you can come on up here. This is Pastor Brad. Part of their philosophy too, um, parents and those of you that are seeing kids come here to be prayed for, is they, we don't think like you dropped them off here and then we got this. Like we're not like your assassins for Jesus, like get the Bible into them. And uh, we want to come alongside you as parents. Like I said, it's, it's nuanced why this generation is leaving. Politics are part of it. You're overworking, you're underworking, you're overprotection, you're underprotection. All kinds of stuff is taking place. And that's why we're talking about this conference, have a bigger conversation about that. But 
in the meantime, until the fall, if we can serve you, this is one of the guys to go to right here, Pastor Brad. And there's a whole team of people. How awesome is this to see up here? Praise the Lord. Hey, guys, uh, let me pray for you um, and just pray. Parents, be praying for them as I'm praying. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to do some great work in the next generation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for this day. Just thank you for all these kids, young adults, students that are here, uh, Father. The ones that are in the nursery and the preschool area and elementary building, 56 who are not in here, Lord, we pray over them. I know what the statistics that Pastor Scott shared, I know what they say, but they are not you and they are not determining what's going to happen. These are just projections. Lord, you are sovereign over all. And so, Lord, we are praying for the next generation and lifting them up to you that they would know you, that they would know the real truth about you and what you have to say about them. And Father, I pray that we as pastors and leaders, parents, grandparents, people who come alongside these these youth and young adults, Lord, we pray for them. We pray that we're generous with your truth, generous with our time, that we are leading them and leading them well, that they may walk in your way. Father, I also just pray for faith. I, I pray for an abundance of faith for them, faith in their life, faith in their walk, faith as they're making decisions about where to go to school, college, high school, whatever it may be. Faith that when they get married, if they if they choose to do so, Lord, that they would do that by faith. Faith for their children, if they have children, Lord, and that is all done by faith. Faith if they're going to be single, Father, that they would live by faith. And Lord, we pray for their protection. We pray, Father, for their protection of their hearts, that you would guard their hearts from all the the lures of this world, things that seem to be shiny and amazing and all that, but they often lead to brokenness and are without hope. And But you, God, are the one who brings hope. I pray that these folks would never stray from you and that they would be sharing with the next generation themselves. They would be leading the next generation and telling stories about you and what you have done in their life. Lord, I pray that throughout their life that they would be fully submitted to you, not partially submitted, fully submitted to you, that they would know your love for them. And Lord, as leaders of the church and parents in the room and Sometimes we fall down on the job and it's okay, Lord, but we just keep trying. We keep sharing stories of you and what you've done, Lord. God, would you do, do an amazing thing and raise up the next generation and just let us be a part of it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.